Well, if you've done any uh, competitive running uh, in your life, A, wow, um, that's amazing. That's not something I would ever do. Um, but you're probably familiar with the, uh, the four-minute mile. The, um, it's kind of known as, as a perfect mile, the four-minute mile. Now, for centuries, people thought that this was actually physically unattainable by a human being. They thought, thought that a human body simply could not run the mile in four minutes. And so for century after century, no man was able to uh, accomplish this task. And then in the, the uh, 1940s, one man ra- uh, ran, and he ran four minutes and one second. Four minutes and one second, so close to the ceiling of the four-minute mile. And that stood there for nine years, four minutes and one second, till finally in 1954, May of 1954, a man named Rich, uh, Roger Bannister decided to give it one more go. And he ran and he ran like he had never run before. And when the times were posted, it said, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. The four-minute mile had finally been achieved. What was once seen as impossible, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. But the story doesn't stop there. Just two months later, Bannister raced again. He raced a man named John Landy. Now, Bannister did end up winning that race just barely. But when the times were posted, it showed that both men had run the mile in less than four minutes. Something that was seen as impossible. Once one man did it, within two months, the next man who raced next to him broke the four-minute mile also. And then less uh, less than a year later, there was another race. And three people in that one race broke the four-minute mile all because one man did what seemed to be impossible. Now the four-minute mile is, is um, it's not commonplace, but it has been done many times. Even great high school runners now can run the mile in four minutes. I think the record now is three minutes, 43 seconds. So 17 seconds better than we thought the human body was capable of. Well, this month we've been in a, ser- in a series called Better Together, how gospel community brings freedom. And we have been diving into the character of our triune God, seeing that because God is a community and we've been made in his image, we have been created for community. The reason that we long for relationship, the reason that we are here this morning is because we have God's image stamped on us. And our God is a community in and of himself. And today, we continue on with the theme of we best promote another's holiness by pursuing our own. We best promote another's holiness when we pursue our own. In the same way that Bannister elevated the entire sport of running by pursuing greatness, we also promote each other's holiness when we personally are pursuing Christ. I had the great privilege of having grandparents who were missionaries in Africa for many years. And even after that, they were in ministry their whole lives. And for much of my life, my grandpa would encourage me towards ministry. But um, quite honestly, Jesus wasn't my treasure. And so the world just looked really sweet to me for a long time. Until the, word did, uh, the Lord did a work in my life. And um, now I see my grandpa as a an amazing example of faithfulness and holiness. This picture up there, this is my grandpa. It's a candid shot I took of him. Uh, last year, he was preparing for a class at a little college in Pennsylvania on a cross-cultural evangelism. There were two guys in this class. 
But George didn't care. George has never been into numbers. George has always been into Jesus. And even to this day, um, each night before I preach, he sends me an email that just says, lift Jesus up. And so I'm so thankful for my grandpa's example of holiness and how that now puts wind into my sails to pursue after Christ because of the amazing example that he has been for me. Paul, writing to a young apprentice of his named Timothy, had this to say. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourselves and all in the teaching. Persist in these things. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we are a relatively young church here at PRISM, and so this word is to us this morning. Let's not let anyone look down on us for our youth, but rather let's set an example to our community Let's set an example to one another in our purity, in our conduct, in our giftings. So this is what we're talking about today. And what an amazing responsibility it is. Think about it. The Lord has designed it that you are to play an eternally significant role in the lives of those around you. The impact that we have on each other The impact that I have on you and that you have on me has eternal significance. Here, Paul even says it. He'll save his hearers when he speaks the truth of God to them. And I'm excited to talk about this today because the issue of faithfully pursuing holiness together has has really been on my heart in this season. Um, I love the gospel-centered movement that we're a part of, and we love to talk about the gospel the gospel of free grace demonstrated in Jesus Christ and how God has pursued us and has shown us Jesus, and we have responded. But if we stop there, we have only half an understanding of the gospel. The gospel isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago that saved us, which it did, and that's wonderfully and gloriously true. But it's also about How then do we respond in light of that? That's a full understanding of the gospel. Jesus didn't just die to make us not guilty. Jesus died to actually make us holy, or to say it another way. The gospel is not just what we were saved from, but what we have been saved to. The two are inseparable. The gospel is the good news that you are now a new creation with new desires. You're a new tree that will bear new fruit. Listen to the beautiful closing exhortation that Paul gives to those in Thessalonica. This is a full gospel understanding. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, your soul, your spirit, your body, so that you will be blameless. So I'm excited to talk about this today. And I have three main points that I want to make about our actually pursuing holiness, or as our text today says, our pursuing obedience to Christ. Number one, our obedience to Christ is the overflow of our love for Christ. 
our obedience to Christ is the overflow of our love for Christ. Our text begins in verse uh, 21 of John 14. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's hard to imagine a more direct statement, isn't it? Admittedly, there are some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. This just isn't one of them. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In fact, in John 14 and 15, Jesus says essentially the exact same thing four times. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Last week, like I said, I was in uh, West Virginia shooting a uh, a wedding out there, and I got into a conversation with a a friend of the groom named Michael, and it became very clear that uh, he was... um, uh, not only not a Christian, but thought it a, a crutch. He actually said that within the thir- first 30 seconds of me meeting him, he made that very clear that this was his thought. And so we uh, got into a, a pretty deep conversation about religious things um, very quickly. And at one point in the conversation, he said, it just seems ridiculous to me that people go to church on Sunday just so that they feel good about how they live for the rest of the week. He said, every Christian I know, that's what they do. He lives in Vegas, um, so that helps as well with that picture. Um, but this is what he thought Christianity was. He thought it was going to church on Sunday, so you felt good about sinning the rest of the week. And I said, yeah, um, I totally agree with you. In fact, Jesus would completely agree with you. That's not good news at all. And so we actually, I actually got to share the entire gospel with him. It was a really wonderful conversation. I saw him the uh, next day. And I went up to him and I said, hey, Mike, how, uh, how's your day been? He's like, it's, it's been pretty good. I actually made my way to a bookstore today. And uh, I bought one of those thick study Bibles that they have there. And he said, uh, now there's a whole big selection of them. So I got the, the ESV study Bible. And I said, well, that's just so happens to be the one that I read. And so uh, it, it ended up being a really sweet time. The rest of the weekend, we had more conversations. And, and he did say he's actually never met Christians like us before. And so we were encouraged. And so you can, uh, you can say a prayer for, for Mike if you want. A little what he know that an entire church now is praying for him this morning. But he's right, isn't he? If we just have one little Jesus compartment in our life that is meant to make us feel good about the rest of our life, how is that lordship? How is Jesus lord of our lives? That's not the good news. Now, it's vitally important that we get the order of what Jesus is saying here right. What Jesus is not saying is that if you keep a bunch of rules that he's given us, then you'll finally measure up and God will then love you. God isn't a Boy Scout leader looking for good boys to give merit badges to. If that were the case, no one would get a merit badge. There'd be no badges. It'd be the worst retreat ever. But that's not what it is at all. As 1 John tells us, we love because he has first loved us. So he is talking about people who have grasped how much God loves them so their lives naturally overflow into obedience to Christ, not in worthless legalism, which is what Mike thought it was, but in genuine love for Christ. And his commandments, which were once to us burdensome and boring and dull, scripture used to be boring to me. It was empty to me when I would read it. Now becomes life 
now become sweet to our taste. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you under, want to understand what this looks like, just start reading the Psalms. This is someone who has been so struck by the beauty of God and his word that he constantly is overflowing with praise of it. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And in 10,000 ways, he is saying over and over again how much he loves the law of the Lord. In Psalm 19, he actually writes this. He says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And Jesus says here in this text, this is the heart cry of every believer. We love Christ, so of course we love what Christ loves. And please hear me this morning. What we're not talking about is perfection, of course. We're talking about a new trajectory, new desires. This is the mark of a true Christian. Love for Christ, which means we will love his commandments, which means we will not be pleased with our sin any longer. And I, not that we don't fail every day, but we hate it now. We want to be like Christ because we love Christ. And you may be here this morning and you're saying, well, that's all well and good, but it feels like condemnation to me because I have certain besetting sins that I've prayed that the Lord would take away. And I still find myself just kind of stuck in it. I know I've been there before. Well, for you, we bring brings us to our next point. Our obedience to Christ is empowered by the Spirit. So we've seen that our obedience to Christ is the overflow of our love for Christ, but our obedience to Christ is empowered by the Spirit. So be encouraged with this, starting in verse 22, the rest of our text. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here's the good news, friends. We have a helper. Jesus has not left us to figure out this whole obedience thing on our own, but he has sent us a helper. Look again at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and then catch this. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if you are struggling with sin this morning, this should be incredibly encouraging for you, because that means that the occupants of your soul are not feeling very much at home there, which is a good sign because it means they live there. Now, if you saw the commandments of Jesus and said, not interested, and I don't really care that I'm not interested, then you should be concerned. But the mere fact that you are struggling is a wonderful sign of the work that the Lord has done in your life. And then verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. 
do you realize that the entire Godhead is on your side? They're on your side. God loves you. That's what Jesus says here. The Father loves you. They're not against you. That's why he's given us his helper to help us along this journey. And it is a journey. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And the helper is here every step of the way to walk with us. I love how uh, Kevin DeYoung says it. He says, The Bible is realistic about holiness. Don't think that all this glorious talk about dying to sin and living to God means there is no struggle anymore or that sin will never show up in the believer's life. The Christian life still entails obedience. It still involves a fight, but it's a fight we will win. You have the Spirit of Christ in your corner, rubbing your shoulders, holding the bucket, putting his arm around you and saying, before the next round with sin, you're going to knock him out, kid. Sin may get in a few good jabs. It may clean your clock once in a while. It may bring you to your knees. But if you are in Christ, it will never knock you out. You are no longer a slave, but free. Sin has no dominion over you. It can't. It won't. A new king sits on the throne. You serve a different master. You salute a different Lord. The Holy Spirit empowers us to fight But we have to realize it is a fight. The Christian life is a steady and vigilant battle against sin. But we must realize holiness isn't just something that happens all of the sudden. So we get saved, we acknowledge that Jesus has justified us, and then we just sit around waiting for ourselves to become more holy. That's not how it works at all, at least not in my life. Now, there are moments where the Lord just brings freedom immediately, and that is really sweet. But that's not the typical norm. He means for us to grow in holiness because he really means for our souls to be wrought into strong souls that are being prepared for glory. This is why he has designed it this way, that we would strive and struggle towards holiness, resting in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. We can't ever believe the lie that grace and effort are at odds. This is not true at all. When it comes to fighting sin, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace empowers our effort now. When it comes to fighting sin, grace is not opposed to our effort. It empowers our effort. This is the entire message of the New Testament. Through Christ, we are made perfect and righteous, and now the Spirit empowers us to actually become that. Look what Paul says to Timothy again. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. And to the Colossians, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then catch this. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, yeah, I toil and struggle with his energy that he is working within me. To the Romans, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Grace and effort are not opposed Effort is now empowered through grace. 
And finally, to the Philippians, this is probably the verse that makes this point most explicitly. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You work out your own salvation. How? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is good news, friends. The Holy Spirit has now empowered our wills. And we will win the fight, but we have to realize this is a fight because God is preparing our souls for glory. And you need a strong soul to be in his presence for all of eternity. And he's going to make sure that it happens. This is how it looks in my life, okay? Actually, let me take one step back. I love how John Piper says it. He says it so well. This is a, a great quote that I replay in my mind often as a, in my on-the-ground battle against sin. He says, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait for the miracle. I act the miracle. When it comes to killing sin, I don't wait around for a miracle. I act the miracle that's already been performed. So in my life, so I decide to go to Santa Monica Beach on my day off. I just take in a book and take in the ocean. And I get there, and it turns out that most of the females there have decided to leave most of their clothes at home for that day. So... I have a choice to make. Lust is right there, right in front of me. So do I stop and pray that the Lord would rain down turtlenecks from on high? I don't need another miracle. I'm no longer enslaved to lust. So I can choose to act the miracle because the Holy Spirit has empowered me. A miracle has already taken place, namely my desire to fight. And so I can claim the promises of Christ. Every one of us this morning should memorize this verse. It is so helpful in practically fighting sin. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is meant to be motivating. That's why Jesus said it. He assumes that you think dwelling and being with God is a greater thing than the smallness of lust. And so we meditate on these things. Or Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be satisfied. We all know that sin doesn't satisfy. It's a lie. And so that's why Jesus gave us so many promises to grab onto. They are meant to be motivating in that moment. So that's what I do. And that's one example of a thousand things. Not that I do it perfectly at all. That is for sure. But the Lord is gracious. This is what I'm talking about, friends. So the next time all your roommates leave, and you feel that gnaw, and you feel that tug to go to places on the internet that you shouldn't, you act the miracle. You realize this is a fight. You set your mind on things that are above. This is what we're talking about. God is for us. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he has given us his helper to help us fight for holiness. And once again, it's important to realize, friends, that this is not a sprint. We need to be gracious with ourselves and with each other. We need to encourage each other. And this is a marathon. And we know that he who began the work will bring it to completion. So we have seen that obedience to Christ is the overflow of our love for Christ. Obedience to Christ is empowered by the Spirit. And finally, our obedience to Christ establishes our love for each other. Our obedience to Christ establishes our love for each other. 
For our final point, we're going to look at John again, but this time to his epistle, which complements his gospel so beautifully. 1 John 5, 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So we have Jesus saying in John 14 that we show our love for him by obeying the commandments. And here John informs that as well in a new way by saying, and we prove our love for each other when we obey the commandments of God. Don't miss this, friends. When you pursue obedience to Christ, you are showing that you love me. When I pursue obedience to Christ, I am showing that I love you. Because here's the truth. We're all part of one body. And so one, one member is suffering, we're all suffering. And when one member is fighting for holiness, we all benefit from that. Because Jesus designed it that we would be continually pouring out truth into each other. And so when I'm not making an effort to fight for obedience to Christ, I don't have anything to pour into you. I'm empty. And so we need to fight next to each other. And in this way, we establish our love for each other. And this is also one of the reasons that um, things like pornography are so tragic not just because of the obvious devastation that it brings in defacing the image of God and, and corrupting our minds, but because of the shame that it puts on people. And when shame is on us, we're not inclined to share truth with each other because we think, who are we to say anything now? How many fathers will no longer have frank and loving conversations with their sons because of the shame that they experience? That is tragic, friends. Christ has bought our freedom, and there is no condemnation in Christ. So what if we were a community that actually knew each other, the good and the messy, a safe enough place where we could actually share because we have a vision of what Christ has accomplished and what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. And so we can bring our shame to each other and speak truth to one another and say, to hell with that shame, literally, to hell with that shame. You are not under the condemnation. You are not a slave to your lust. So let's pursue Christ together. That's how gospel community brings freedom when we're real about our struggles. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great uh, German pastor who was martyred under Hitler, wrote a wonderful little book called Life Together. And he says this beautifully, like he said all things beautifully. He said, God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is often weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. 
And this also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. This is how Jesus has designed it. That we would constantly be preaching the message of salvation to one another. And so in this way, when we are pursuing obedience to Christ, we establish our love for each other because we actually have truth to pour into each other, which is the most loving thing we could ever do. One of my best friends, Mike, who some of you met, he uh, rode out with me when I was coming from Orlando. Every morning for over three years now, he has sent out a daily devotional. It's just one of his spiritual disciplines. And so this year he's just taken a text of scripture and then written six or seven sentences on it. And uh, every morning I see that in my email box. And just by seeing that Mike has been faithful for one more day, it puts wind in my sails again for that day because I know Mike is striving and Mike is pursuing holiness and it encourages me then to partner with him. I know I'm not alone. When we pursue Christ individually, we can help each other and carries each other's burdens. And in this way, our obedience to Christ establishes our love for each other with Christ as the foundation of our lives. And that's why, too, I've been so encouraged in our church as we've grown in just the past couple months and have actually really started to engage in community. I mean, it's even hard to get you guys to shut up during time together. That's the the greatest thing ever. And seriously, though, it's just so sweet because I think we're starting to get a taste of what that actually could look like. And wouldn't that be good news to our city? Not that we're perfect at all, but that we love Jesus, we seek obedience to him, and in that way we love each other. We pour truth into each other. And so I experienced that once again this week in so many ways, but one way in particular, um, uh, a dear friend of mine, a community group, he uh, had heard a song during that week from the uh, 1700s that really, that really struck him, a beautiful gospel-saturated hymn. And so he uh, hand-wrote it out for me, all the lyrics, just to give to me, to encourage me, and it did encourage me. So thank you, Dale, for this. Uh, I appreciate how your pursuit of Christ has encouraged me even just this week. And so I thought it'd be fitting if we uh, close by hearing the beautiful message of this uh, song. It's called A Christ the Apple Tree. The tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruits and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ the apple tree. This beauty doth all things excel. My faith I know, but ne'er can tell. The glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought, and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see it's found in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil, and I shall come and set a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ the apple tree. I'll sit and eat the fruit divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ, the apple tree. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive and keeps my dying soul alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Jesus Christ 
is our life. His commandments are not burdensome, friend. We have a helper. Praise God for that. Won't you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that your vision for our lives, not just now but forever, is so much greater than we could have ever imagined. And so when you call us to obedience, when you call us to fight the good fight of faith, you are calling us to our greatest happiness, our deepest joy. And Lord, I would pray that as a church, even me included, of course, that we would all grow in our love for Christ, which would necessarily overflow into obedience to Christ. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. May that not be burdensome this morning, but rather may that have the ring of freedom to us, Lord. We are free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And Lord, I would pray if there's any in this room this morning who has never experienced that freedom, that they would find it this morning, that they would turn to you in simple faith and rest in what Jesus has already accomplished for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.